Tell me what you see. I see the blanket fort that I built to record this podcast. From here, I can hear the constant drone of cars going up and down the street. I can hear my roommate's cat as she meows at the door. And as usual, I can hear the construction from my neighbor next door that will invariably wake me up tomorrow morning. I've drank Arizona for many years, and always the green tea ginseng honey of opening that can the way the metal tears away. That is like no other can of Arizona or that of any other can. Puts me back to high school theater, college freshman year, or any long drive that I've taken in the last three years. Welcome to What Builds Us, a show that explores the ways our built environment affects our emotions, experiences, and day-to-day lives. I'm Brian. And I'm Sean. And for episode three this month, we are talking all about sound. (laughs) (laughs) Unlike smell, sound is something that we consciously interact with in a lot of spaces. We are pretty much aware of it always, but at the same time, it's not something that we can control, which is similar to smell in some way. You know, we walk into a space and even if it's silent, we can somehow hear the way our footsteps resonate within it. You know, we can hear the where the walls are probably, for the most part at least, you know, and that's kind of how sound plays into scale and form as well. But I think sound is really unique in the way that it's present and also subconscious. It's true because in some ways it's almost a combination of sight and smell in that um, like smell, it's often outside of you. You're you're hearing the sounds that other things are making, other people are making. Um, but also, like sight, it's from you. You're you're making sounds, like you said. You can always hear your feet. Uh, something as basic like that um, as you move through space. So it really is. Um, it is pervasive, and I think it is very conscious. Yeah, it's also in that too. It reminds me of how much it really does impact the quality and comfort of the spaces that we are so familiar with. What blows my mind too is the power of sound being able to kind of rule over your other senses, which brings me back to that very human experience of driving down a road and you have to turn the volume down to look for stuff, which is (laughs) always kind of a jarring reality. Like, why do I have to do this? But you have to do it. I feel like really loud sounds do have the ability to kind of overtake the rest of your senses and like make you really pay attention to them yeah i wouldn't have thought of that car analogy but i think it's so universal and it totally illustrates like you said how primary that sense of sound is that sense of of hearing i i agree that like when you think of a library the first thing you think of is that it's quiet even though like why it really should be that it has books and you can go there and it's public space. You know, there's all these other things that are are really much more essential to its use and to its design. But it's a quiet place. That's the thing. That's the thing about libraries. Um, and so many other are, other spaces are, are defined by their their sonic qualities because, like you said, it, it really it overrides those other senses in some ways. It, it sort of 
lives on top and and guides your impressions of all those other all that other information you're taking in from your other senses yeah and going back to the library too it's it's you know it's quiet i would also say it's it's thick it's heavy it's absorbent and all those secondary qualities that would that i would use to describe a library are pertaining to typically the materials that are designing a library that are used to absorb sound it's the materials relationship to sound so it's our first thought is the sound and our second thought is the materials relationship to sound does that make sense makes total sense and whether or not you know we are architects i think that that's something that we're kind of subconsciously noting about place yeah i think a really good example of that is uh from season one we we toured around a, a few different types of public space with our good friend ivan and so many of our first impressions and so many of his first impressions, and he's not an architect, uh, were about sound. And like Sean, you just said, they related to all sorts of other architectural things like material and like volume and form. But really the, the thing that expressed those ideas and expressed those qualities was sound. And that's what we picked up on from the first. Foyer, is this called a foyer? I assume this is a bunch of marble everywhere. There's, there's very few contexts in which like ornateness feels appropriate or cool to me. Like, I would hate to live in a place like this, um, unless it meant that I was exorbitantly wealthy, in which case like, I'd fine, I'll live in it. <laughs> yeah, like, that's what it, that's what it have to do. I feel like the ways that a space talks back to you is really interesting, which is, you know, said it another way, it's called reverb, right? So the way that your action in a space is then shot back at you can tell you a lot about the space's response. And part of me, you know, always feels a bit like I'm in a music video when I'm walking down a hall in shoes with a hard heel and you just hear the clickety clack of your power walk going clack, down. Clack, clack. You know, no one can stop Straight you. Strutting. Yeah, you're just fucking Beyonce. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't swear, but <laughs> it's, it's be in those moments you're Beyonce. So I, I, all bets are I feel like I've also totally had the opposite reaction, where like I walk into a space and I'm really animated, getting excited about something, and then suddenly I'm in this big, really reverby space. And I go like, oh my God, I have to be quiet in here. Yeah. You know, because <laughs> yeah. suddenly it's much louder than you, and you know, than you anticipated being. And so you really kind of hush down your conversation, even if there's no one there. So sound also gives us all these little cues about buildings that I really think everyone is tuned into, whether it's unconscious or or not. You know, it, if it's a windy day and you can hear that building rattling and creaking and shaking around you, you have a sort of innate sense about the structural honesty and, and the way that that building was put together, um, even if you don't realize it, even if you're not thinking about like, oh, well, it's a... It's a concrete wall compared to a two by four wood frame. Like you really, just the sound of that, that building shaking in the wind gives you some sense of it and changes your comfort, changes your experience, changes your expectation. Yeah. I think that that's one of the things that I always point people back to, you know, I, especially because so many people have, you know, their, their classic crappy first apartment that they lived in 
where every time the wind would gust by, they felt the house shake a little bit and they just prayed that, you know, when there was a rainstorm, they wouldn't lose power. And then there's buildings that you might come to live in in your life or at least exist in. And when there's a storm outside, you're kind of not even faced by it. You're like, oh, I don't care. I'm good. And it's that really subconscious understanding of a place that impacts the way that you're able to operate throughout your day right if i'm studying if i'm researching if i'm cooking anything right um my ability to do that productively is impacted by the space that i'm in especially in the case of there's a storm outside right like where am i where do i feel safe where do i feel secure where do i feel like i'm paying very much attention to the fact that the wind is going by that the rain is going by anything like that and so it's our sense of space through sound, through experience, through movement, all connected, teaching us about our environment. When we approached this episode, we really wanted to focus in on people who cared about the impact of sound and the experience of sound in place. And being in Boston, where music here is is so huge, so many people start their music careers here, learn about music here. We wanted to start with musicians here and the experience of their sound in their spaces. There's so many good musicians in this city across such a wide range of genres and vibes that we couldn't help ourselves. And we have three really good interviews with three really amazing groups of musicians who all bring their own unique perspective to to space and to the experience of sound in space. When you think about it, where people are hearing music is a significant factor to the impact that it has on them. You know, we could talk for days about like the difference between sound heard through a car radio, sound heard through Bose headphones. Yeah, and sound you hear by yourself with headphones, sound you hear in your apartment with one other person, and sound you hear blasting from an amp with a thousand other people in a venue, and just everything in between. It, it has such a big impact, and all the people we interview today think about that impact uh, so deeply. So to start with one of the most unique Boston scenes there is, we reached out to the members of Bat House, who we interviewed for their perspective and experience on performing in basement shows, which is a tight, sweaty, dark place that every, you know, tween and young adult and adult and person, you know, naked, clothed, regardless of what you look like person like just crawls to the basement of Alston houses to experience sound amongst other people and it is such a unique and invigorating and enlightening experience to be there and these people get to be the ones who host it and I feel so lucky to consider them my friends um and I'm happy that they're going to be on our show Hi guys, I'm Allie Julian, and I am a guitar player and vocalist in the band Bathouse. My name is Shane Blank, and I am a producer and guitar player and member of Bathouse. Bell, 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 bell. 
most houses in Boston have basements. It's kind of an essential, it seems. I'm from Florida originally. No houses in Florida have basements. It's not a thing there. So I think for a lot of kids, you know, having, you know, being in college, you know, knowing a lot of people, you know, parties go hand in hand with music. It makes sense that people throw shows in, you know, basements and stuff. Um, you know, there's just a huge community here for um, basement shows. Um, you know, basements... As a space for music, I think, you know, considering, you know, sizes, different obstacles and things, basements are usually, you know, create, you know, made of like stone or, you know, um, some have carpets in them. I mean, I've, we played in basements that have tiles in them, you know, and it will affect how your music sounds. I think that's always an interesting thing to consider when you're, you know, bringing all of your stuff down into the basement. Um you know, you often pretty quickly have to figure out how exactly you might maybe change what you were going to play before, especially for Bat House. We've always been kind of a loud band. We usually have to think about things like that. Yeah, and I feel like the reason why basements are a massive thing in regards to where live music is being held, especially in Boston, is the fact that it's underground and that keeps a lot of the sound in. So you don't want the cops to hear you, you don't want the cops to be called on you, sound complaints. And the basement is kind of this, you know, subterranean, separate space. Uh, you know, the rock and the fact that you are underground keeps the, the sound better contained than it would be if you were up in the living room. Anytime we have played in a living room, we've literally probably played like half volume. Uh, we're like pretending to be like a smooth jazz band, which has always been kind of fun when we're like, all right, let's play this the complete opposite way that we would play in a basement. We're going to turn the way down. We're going to be super chill. We're not going to, you know, blow the windows out. We're, when we're underground, um, it's just a total separate space from, you know, where people are living, where people are cooking their breakfast, where people are watching their movies. And the basement has always kind of been this condensed, like, chaos realm where bodies are squeezed into and you can just crank the volume and it's like, Almost because it is underground, more energy and sound is just contained and people are moshing around and you can like bounce off the walls. There's no windows to be broken and like push into one another and like hit all your different sound effects. And the sound's not really going anywhere other than into the crowd in front of you. Um, so I think the basements have always been our favorite place to play and our least favorite places to play have been the massive cavernous rooms that do not really do us uh, must much justice in regards to like our music and our sound because the sound would just bounce everywhere and bleed in. Um, where yeah, more confined, condensed underground spaces has held our sound a lot better. All the basement shows that I've ever been to or that we played, I mean, all of the like the intimacy of just like being so squished into like a fire hazardous area and like. The fact that the band's, band's right here and their amps are right there and it's just a wall of sound. And I used to do this thing at our shows. Uh, there's a part, our songs, our older songs were just like chaotic. So many different parts and a lot of like big buildups into like uh, 
just like a shreddy part and we'd be building up and when the shreddy part would hit i would just run into the crowd because they were right there and like it doesn't matter if i was messing up what i was playing guitar but people would just freak out and push me around and then everybody start moshing and then i would just like go back and be like you know it was it's like throwing <laughs> a match into like a gas can or something like you could totally Though just wall of sound combined with the energy, you had so much control over over the crowd pretty much. You just had to kind of interact and engage. Where when you're up on a high stage and your crowd is down there, it's so much more isolating and like it's it's scarier to be on a stage. Yeah, and like as the person who's not ever on the stage in this context, but like is in the basement watching, it's I think a big reason why people become obsessed with basement shows is because of that intimacy between that you get only in those environments between you and the artists that you're with they, there are basements everywhere and i know i kind of opened up and said that there are no basements in florida and that's just maybe a florida specific thing because <laughs> of water but they are i you know yeah, we played a lot of basements. <laughs> Those were glory days, really. Like, when we first started out, we were able to, like, kind of gain some local notoriety because of the basement scene. It was just explosive when we first started. And then we had our own basement venue where we'd book bands, and we would book touring bands. People would hit people up who we knew in Boston, who would then hit us, us up and be like, hey, can you book this band from... We had bands as far as, like, Seattle. We were just touring, booked entirely through Facebook. And through that, we were able to kind of curate a network of people. And when we booked our first uh, tour, it was all basements. Uh, the basements, like, just playing a grungy DIY Facebook-booked basement show, like, the energy just doesn't compare, you know, to the venue shows, in my opinion. A lot of when you're playing a venue, sometimes your gear's behind the stage or there's a green room and you can like chill separately. Or when you're playing a basement, you have to like, like the crowd's there. And when you're loading, like the one band gets off the stage, aka the back corner of the basement, and the other band loads in, you have to literally like, excuse me, excuse me, like carry your 80 pound amp, like through everybody. Like you are touching everybody. Everybody's like breathing on each other, like total pre-pandemic nightmare or <laughs> pandemic nightmare pre-pandemic just like total intimacy and trust amongst one another yeah. um and then yeah as soon as your show is done you're just there facing everybody and you're like okay thanks uh excuse me excuse me push people <laughs> like thank you thank you and you know go hide away but there's no hiding when you're playing a basement show you are one with the crowd you know Music, music doesn't happen in a vacuum, which is like a thing that I often forget because, you know, you record music and then you have it in your computer, you know, you might be messing with it and stuff, but like, you know, you add reverb to give it space, you know, that's the thing, like people are always hearing things based, you know, their reflections, so, you know, this sound is hitting this building or it's hitting this wall or you know, things like that. I mean, it's, it's just how we hear things naturally, you know. So Bad House is really sick. They really encapsulate that Austin basement 
scene and to complement that we wanted to really to jump to a totally different genre a totally different kind of energy around live performance we reached out to the band hawthorne which is made up of two members who approach the music scene in a different energy right so bat house is this like bold loud sweaty dirty basement show and hawthorne is above ground is calm is softer is chill i want to say open but it's not open yeah it's like chill but it's a different kind of chill is the thing right it's not i, I that's what's so cool is like they both both these energies bring communities together from totally different perspectives and i think the value of that is it really widens this conversation to being about sound that brings music together and the necessity for different places to make that effective right yeah coffee shop versus the basement Hey, I'm Heather. I'm uh, one half of Hawthorne. We're a Boston-based progressive folk group. And I'm Taylor, and I am the other half of this music project. I mean, I think music and space are so connected to each other. Especially, like, when we're talking about live music, that is a, an invitation for people to gather. And so if you have that happening, then you immediately have an implication of space. Like even if you're outdoors, when a crowd gathers, their bodies are creating a space and it's pretty clear where the gathering is happening and where it's not. Thinking about the kind of music that Hawthorne performs, they have to be so intentional about the kind of venues that they perform in and make sure that it caters to the experience of how they want their music to be received, you know? so. We were curious as to their experience of, of what it means to perform in different kinds of spaces with their type of music and how it affects the way that audience members hear it. I will say a place that um, I really love playing is the Lizard Lounge, and it's specifically set up as a listening room. It's, it, you know, there's a center stage, it's the center of the whole place. There's um, mirrors to make it feel bigger. You know, all of the chairs are like centered toward the stage and the stage is on the same level as everybody else, so there isn't like a hierarchical thing, so that feels really nice. It's, it's like ex extraordinarily impactful. I think there's certain spaces that would like push people to listen or push people not to listen to an artist. There are like certain spaces that different genres of bands like wouldn't necessarily want to play or like wouldn't, you wouldn't think of a, like you wouldn't think of a folk band like playing an Austin basement show. Um, and like, they're like, like there are great, like punk bands who are playing Austin basement shows and it's perfect for them. So I think, I think that not only are people influenced by the space, but I think like whatever genre the space influences you too. If the audience is showing up expecting to uh, move or be moved, like a, a, a venue that is set up for shows that are mostly dancing is going to be a space with just like a big open floor. And like if you are wanting to play an intimate, um, like maybe acoustic show or whatnot, and, and there's nowhere for people to sit down, that really doesn't right. facilitate that. Like there have been shows that we've played where 
the room has been kind of big and empty and we literally said to people like everybody just like come closer and sit on the floor like because otherwise it's this isn't gonna work i mean and then there's like even more like nuanced pieces of this right we are like as a band like always like where do we load in where do we where do we put all our shit where do we put our like personal belongings do we have a green room uh, um, where are we entering from when we are going on stage logistically we're always thinking about you know spaces and and then also how we're standing on stage to get the best sound like I have a hearing loss so like I'm always on one side of Taylor because we're the two kind of like main beacons of this project and directing at all times you know so we're constantly even before we like test mics we're thinking about space Heather and I used to do, when we were first starting out, we did DIY shows at the space that Heather was living at, which was like a big um, community household, and it was amazing. Like, people still talk about those shows. It was this, like, repurposed um, warehouse in Cambridge um, that had this big hall, big brick hall with, like, vaulted ceilings. and. It was magical, you know, I, I have people all the time talk about those shows and just say how, like, there's nothing else like that. Um, and, like, to hear that and also know how exhausting it was for us to put those on. And, you know, you get to a point as a performer where you're kind of weighing, like, the energy that you're giving to the performance as an artist and the energy that you're giving to facilitating the space, and you just start to not be able to do both. Um, so that's tough. One thing I was thinking about was the, is the kind of venue and DIY. Mm -hmm. But then you have this whole other world where, like, people are putting together shows in alternative spaces. And... Like there are, you know, in a lot of communities and genres, DIY shows happen because that kind of music is not welcome in mainstream spaces. Um, and also the kind of gatherings that happen around the music are not welcome, you know, especially with like livelier dance music where you have people partying who, you know, are of identities that are not welcome to be in their joy in mainstream spaces. And also, like, to support artists who are doing things that are pushing creative boundaries. So we got the chance to talk to those two amazing groups of musicians and to kind of further expand the conversation. We wanted to talk to someone who had their foot in that in the live performance world, who is a musician themselves, but also uh, is in the studio world, who takes the the music and the songs developed in those energetic live performances and tries to put them down down on wax, as they say. Uh, Colin Fleming, who's a sound engineer at Q Division Studios, uh, so kindly welcomed us into his space. And what's exciting is this interview with Colin got to be in person. 
being based in Somerville, Brian and I got to go to site, as one would say, in the architecture world with masks on and interview Colin in real life and get to see the studio ourselves. So pardon the muffled conversation, but it was really cool to be able to get an in-person interview with someone for the show. Totally worth it. I'm Colin Fleming. Uh, I'm an audio engineer here at Q Division. I've been here for the last two and a half years. Sound engineer. So I guess the the basic requirement is that we are professional pluggers in of things. Um, we, you know, anything that needs a recording, we are there to facilitate the best possible recording. And that means a couple things. That means like it sounds good, it feels good, it feels like natural, uh, comfortable. I would say a lot of an audio engineer's job are like the soft skills of like working with people and with creators. And the thing about a recording studio is that there's like an inherent kind of pressure, you know, like we're pressing record, we have a very specific thing we're here to do. And so my job as an audio engineer, I find a lot of the times just kind of breaking that division between, you know, you walk into a studio space a lot of times, it's very sterile. It's like, do I, can I touch this? Can I do this thing? Can I not do this thing? So I find a lot of times for me, it's just making people feel comfortable in a, in a space. And, you know, we're here to just create. And that's like the ultimate thing that we all want to do. So I think it's very, we just need to focus on that part and not necessarily that I'm about to press record. It was really awesome to go to Q Division. I had never been to a studio, but you know, you see them in like music videos and movies and stuff, and you feel like you have some idea. And I have to say, it really kind of lived up to that. Like there was instruments everywhere and like old audio equipment. And I felt very comfortable. And partly that's because Colin was a good host, but also like Sean, you and I just, we sat right down, we were chilling, like we, it was a very nice space to be in. Yeah, and not being, you know, like engulfed in the music world as musicians, it's, you know, this big question comes up is like, is it all the fancy equipment that makes a final take? Or is it the essence of the space? Is it the setup? What does it take to make the final cut that people want that gorgeous final sound? You know, like, is it the fact that this place is so cool? <laughs> How does it make it on the record? Yeah. Yeah, so that's a really good question. I would say a lot of it is just kind of how how it feels like it's just the immediate reaction you have as it was happening so it's a little bit of everything it's a little like how it feels it's whether or not um it's kind of coming to a, a consensus so like what everybody feels is the best thing so like my judgment of what is good might be different depending on what you know the situation is what might be a great drum sound for like a rock song is going to be a shitty drum sound for like a jazz recording or you know, so like it really just depends what you're after, kind of what headspace you want to be in. It's, it can be something as small as like, like I am sort of a stickler for like cable management, like in a session. And so like, I'm a big believer that like, if you know, an artist or a singer is going to be primed to be uncomfortable because they're going to be, you know, about to press record. Like it's one of the most vulnerable places you could be is to like try and sing lead vocal on a song. And so I think like a big part of it is just setting up that comfortable space and like so if there's cables just all like if there's chaos in the room like you're gonna feel that 
So when we looked through the glass into the actual studio space, there was a real mishmash of instruments, but also these sort of walls and building blocks and different chairs and curtains and things like that. So we were curious how Colin actually approaches the physical space of the studio, you know, beyond just the energy and the feel in there, how he sets up the, the room itself to, to record an, a song. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, pretty much everything that's not like bolted to the wall in there is um, modular and movable. So we have like eight or ten. They're called gobos, go-betweens, um, which are literally just on like you can see them, like the big planks of wood just on wheels that you stick yeah. between things. Like if you want, you know, we have like for, like an upright bassist and you know a flautist on the other side of the room, and you don't want you know you want to minimize bleed. Sound is going to go everywhere and just do the best you can to um you know separate things but sometimes you want to embrace that like you want the sound of people in a room playing together um and so you wouldn't use those necessarily and we've said time and time again how as architects we walk into a space and we snap to hero it sound we do all these things to like connect with the space that we're in because we're interested and we're intrigued and we've been trained to do so right so we were curious if colin as someone who's always working with sound is weirdly tuned in to the sound of space or if that's not really something that he picks up on i imagined he was no i'd say like the oral sense is one that i'm like tapped into the most yeah. uh, pretty much all the time it's not necessarily that i'd walk into a 7-eleven and be like how does it sound inside the 7-eleven it would be like just i don't know like I, i'm always tapped in like i almost can't turn it off sometimes and i'm always listening for music or for cool ambient sounds or like i'll carry around a similar zoom recorder like if you find a cool sound like you'll record that shit and you know you'll use it for something and mm -hmm. So I feel like my ears are always open, whether I want them or you know to be or not, um, to just what's in the room, what's in the space I'm in, and you know, yeah. But for playing, it's interesting because I, I was before I was in recording, I was an orchestral percussionist. A lot of like playing and performing percussion is judging how loud you can comfortably be in a space because you know you get. 32 inch timpani that are you could blast some hair back if you wanted to so a lot of you know like drummers have it kind of ingrained in their in themselves like how best to comfortably and musically fill the space and so like that's kind of part of our like ethos as musicians and creators is like how can we best fill the space without you know with what we have and without you know making it a terrible experience by playing too loud and also a lot of the times the conductor is telling you to play less loud so sometimes it's just literally bringing a smaller drum <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like playing with brushes instead of a stick yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, i had a professor at school that her whole thing her new thing was like she was a doctorate in psychoacoustics um, which is like how sound enters your brain and like how that actual process between like eardrum and you know brain you know, works um, and the timing between the eardrum and your cochlear nerve is what determines what tells your brain where sound is in your you know stereo field and so like if it hits this side earlier than the left side your brain's going to tell you the sound is coming from over there um, and mine is actually because I was a drummer mine's actually a little messed up and so 
my timing is a little delayed. And so I'm actually not able to very well tell exactly where a sound is coming from in a space, which is kind of interesting. Like your brain tells you one thing, but it might not be necessarily the case. So thanks once again to the bands Bathhouse and Hawthorne, as well as musician and sound engineer Colin Fleming. It was really dope to, to get such a wide range of, of voices for this episode. Yeah, I really love that we were able to kind of mix everything in and cram it all into like one really dense episode, which we haven't really done before. Uh, but to get any information on all of our guests, head to our show notes and our Instagram for sure, at coalesce.design. And you can find everything there on each band and person. Um, any thoughts or feelings, questions or comments, you can uh, always send us a message on Instagram or send us an email. That's info.coalescedesign at gmail.com. And as always, our website has some great info, our other work, and direct links to, to every episode. That's coalescedesign.org. What Built Us is written and produced by us, Chantel Trombley and Brian Sanford. Mixing and editing is done by me, and music is by Will Gooding. You can find more music from him at www.thorns-roses.bandcamp.com. And uh, I think that's about it for episode three. Thanks for, uh, thanks for listening in. Thank you so much. And our next episode is going to be all about touch, which is going to be really cool and unique. And we have another bizarre approach to it. So I'm very much looking forward to that conversation. It will be out in about a month. Put it down. <laughs> I was going to try to do like a touch sound effect, but I don't really know how. So maybe we do it. <laughs> I, I heard nothing. I I know, I guess you can't hear it because you're recording with your own headphones, but I, I'm, oh, I can hear it in my ear. It makes me go to gas. <laughs> oh, Maybe not God, that. you're going to hear it later. You're going to hear it later when I edit it and put it together for your approval. <laughs> I'm touching the Furby that is my mic. Oh, no. oh yeah, of course. <laughs> I'm like, I wish that we could high five, but I'm not, I'm not with you. If I were to high five, I'd hit a trash can, TBH. Maybe I'll just high five so. the mic. Yeah, high five hmm. the mic. Uh, my, a self high five is less fun. Oh, it was a really <laughs> good self high five. There we go. That's the one. That sounded good from over here. And the thing is, nothing is lonelier than a high five on your own. <laughs> <laughs> but if you call it a clap, it feels better. I think so. we deserve a round of applause. And if it's not going to come from anyone else, <laughs> I'll give it to us by myself. Yeah. Here we go. We're gonna end the. We're gonna end this episode with a round of applause on our own. <laughs> Love it. Love it.